This is Yasukoya Radio, amplifying the voices of connected government and support innovation. Hi, I'm John Wells, and thanks for joining me for this special edition of Gov 2.0 Radio, brought to you from the National Convention Centre in Australia's federal capital, Canberra. This is a live discussion as part of the closing of what's been the Gov Innovate Conference on Gov 2.0, and this is a session called Beyond Gov 2.0, Open Gov Society 2.0. Joining us at the close of this Gov Innovate program is a panel of four participants, Susan Sly, the Chief Information Officer for Vic Roads in the Australian state of Victoria, Craig Tomler, internationally known as a Gov 2.0 advocate, Don Easter, the IT supplier advocate for the Australian Government, and Mary Ann Williams, the Associate Dean of Engineering and IT at the University of Technology in Sydney. Welcome to you all. Uh, let's kick off by asking uh, a very broad question. We've been talking about eGov, Gov 2.0, digital and open Gov today. I'd like to hear from any of you, is, the, is this journey a timeline, a continuum, or in fact is it a series of spheres? Do we build on each one? In short, can you do open government well if you haven't done eGov or Gov 2.0 well? Well, I might pick this one up, John. Um, I think that uh, they represent different stages, I think, in the life cycle of how uh, we've been internalising uh, digital technology into uh, government and into society. Um, so e-government probably came first because that was all about how you take these government transactions and put them online. Um, then we had the emergence of social media and the ideas around uh, Government 2.0 where suddenly you could change the relationship between uh, citizens and government in a much broader way than simply at the transactions. And I think now we're starting to bring it all together in a more uh, comprehensive and integrated way and look at how does this all come together in a way in which we can make governments more transparent and accountable to their citizens and bring citizens deeper into the process of governance. Um, from a, a perspective around a CIO, I think when you, you look at government and the breadth of government, it's a large organisation and we heard in the previous presentation that there are still government agencies that are, are on you know, IE6 and so you're going to get a, a huge disparity at any point in time in the maturity of an individual organisation both in terms of how it delivers services and, and how it uh, delivers its strategies as well as its technology platforms. So for me it's very much a continuum and a continuum with people on completely different parts of the maturity curve at any point in time. Um, I think for me the main thing is that we maintain the evolution with a little bit of occasional revolution thrown in there and that we're able to also um, identify those, um, those points of excellence um, where people are thinking differently, are delivering differently and how do we leverage those so that we can actually perhaps you know, come the revolution um, keep things going and be able to, to pick up and change things um, very quickly. We've been talking uh, today a lot about open government uh, and given though it's a Gov 2.0 conference, does it suggest that in this journey we, you know, we've talked about um, Gov 2.0 being almost a kind of conversation, if you like, between government and the community? Do we need a kind of society 2.0 uh, focus? Do we need to be looking at ways that we bring citizens, representative, peak bodies and others more into dialogue with government? As a public servant, I'll speak out on this one. Um, it's really interesting. I think actually there are a whole lot of ways. I think we've got Gov 2.0. I don't think we've yet got Politics 2.0. I, I think we've, we've actually really got to look at 
at in fact how our political system, mm -hmm. because I think we have got society 2.0. The, the Obama campaigns are legendary. Mm -hmm. As, mm. as case studies of 2.0 and even local government politicians around the world have followed in his footsteps. I'm, I'm curious why you say we don't have politics 2.0. What are your thoughts? I think the campaign's 2.0. I, yeah. I don't think we've got government 2.0 yet. Okay. I, I think we are... And this, this is very much my layman's view. I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm, I'm not a, a chief of staff in, or a political staffer. But... Um, I, I think that we are, we are reacting and responding often to social media um, at a political layer in a way that we're not yet mature enough to do. And so I think we're, we're reacting um, and perhaps we're not actually leveraging the benefits that social media and things give us for policy development. We, we don't wiki policy development, but we'll respond to Twitter. Mm. And, and, I, and I'm not saying we shouldn't respond to Twitter. You know, I certainly use it as a CIO. But I think we've got to really get a way to get maturity into the dialogue, to get maturity into the engagement models. And that has to pervade you know, right through from, from how we engage as citizens as government, how we engage citizens as politicians and how we engage government as politicians. I, I think there is just room for us to move in that space. And if I can just add a couple of thoughts on that. I think a large part of Government 2.0, which isn't actually really discussed, I don't think people are really conscious of it, is that a lot of Gov 2.0 is about government having conversations with itself and actually rethinking how it operates in respect citizens, in testing its own culture to see is its culture right, and there's a lot of things going on under the surface. So I think you know, the outward perception of it is that it's all about how citizens are doing things for themselves and putting pressure on government and government is using new channels. But there's this internal dialogue that's going on within government that I think that's possibly the most important part of it because it is actually government questioning are we doing things the best possible way in society and can we improve it? Um, whether a society can have that conversation itself is another question entirely because that is a much broader question, has a lot more stakeholders and I think in a lot of senses society is barrelling forward into using all these uh, technologies that are coming out very, very rapidly and still working out the actual uh, protocols and the, uh, and the right ways to use them. You know, when do you leave your mobile phone on? Uh, when is it appropriate to actually, you know, tweet something about your baby? And it's things like that that we're still fundamentally establishing the new rules of etiquette for society and we're nowhere near that, the end of that yet. So, Craig, picking up on this, this thought about government uh, having the conversation internally to help kind of, if you like, Get, get their heads around this. I'd like to come back to, to Susan, to Susan Sly. I know that you've got an interest in social media as a knowledge exchange uh, tool. Um, now, some see social media content as trivial, um, but what are some ways that you feel government agencies can use social media to share knowledge, to enhance productivity? Oh, I think um, it's, it's absolutely, for us, it's actually a critical tool. But for VicRoads as an organisation, um, for Victorian government, um, it's, it's absolutely at the forefront of how we, we are aiming to do business and increasingly doing business. And for me as a CIO, it's incredibly important. So um, if you have a look at my Twitter account, I don't put, you know, I'm not putting reams of material out on it. Um, generally, it's either about uh, IT and things that we are doing in that space or it's actually about rugby union. So, um, so you've got to be in one of, one of either camps. Um, 
but also in, internally with my staff, um, we use internal social media. I've used that as a, a, as a particular change management tool, going through an organisational restructure and, and refunctioning, using it to communicate from my part of the organisation out to others. Um, Vicroads uses Facebook to communicate with people. Um, if you, you have a look on the Vicroads Twitter account, you know we, we listen to that and we put things out. Um, we're using these things because it's actually a part of our core business is servicing citizens and industry. Um, social media has got to be, it's almost a unique channel. I, I think we tend to lump everything in as being online or very broad, broadly around you know, digital. I think we actually have to differentiate possibly more between the individual channels within social media and teach people how to use them as a part of their engagement models. Thanks, Susan. In the spirit of skimming across a, a range of different aspects of this theme, I'd like to come back to Craig uh, around external uh, communication and consultation. Craig, we've heard uh, in yesterday's forum about, uh, from DesignGov about non-saltation. What are the leading edge trends around deliberative democracy, around online consultation tools and the like? Um, it's, it's a very interesting area because a lot of the innovation in this space is happening uh, in Europe, uh, South America and, and North America um, of all places. Um, Australia has been quite conservative in how it consults with its citizens and I think uh, we've been very resistant to changing it because the processes we have in place have largely delivered the outcomes we've been looking for. But I think we're starting to see a situation where the the outcomes we're seeking are starting to change. We're, we're having more and more decision-making processes that end up in decisions that, that aren't broadly accepted and that's going to start driving some of the innovation in how people go about uh, consulting. But I think the biggest teller is when organisations stop thinking about the wow the new technologies they can use for innovation and actually start rethinking what are actual goals and what are the appropriate tools to use to actually engage citizens to get the information needed for decision making. Um, and uh, the places to watch are definitely South America where they're doing a lot of uh, collaborative budgeting um, and this is where they go beyond computers where they actually have pieces of papers up in walls and cities where basically uh, citizens can come and indicate how they want budgets spent. Um, in North America around uh, challenges and idea sourcing where they're engaging citizenry and actually saying what do you think is important for government, what, you know, what are the priorities that you see for us in the future. Um, and in Europe it's a little bit of a hybrid of the two where we're seeing both things going in place and we're seeing a lot more emphasis on how do we set up citizen panels and uh, distribute decision making out to groups of citizens rather than holding it tight within the walls of power. And we'll include a link on our episode page uh, of an interview with Tiago Pichotto from the World Bank uh, Institute around participatory budgeting. Yes, uh, I the comment I wanted to make, and I'll use a non-government example to illustrate it, but the government is the custodian of policy etiquette, I'll call it. Uh, I recently did some work in the funeral industry. The church has declined. Uh, the church used to own all the rituals around funerals and you were guided by the church uh, when someone died. As, as the population has shifted away from being you know, active uh, churchgoers, the funeral directors have become the custodians of, of ritual. So people don't know anymore what the rituals are around death. 
So using that uh, interesting industry example, uh, I would say that uh, the public service who I've always found in working with them to be professional and, and very concerned about citizens have this knowledge and you have to share it with people who in a way have disengaged with political government. Uh, you know, politicians rank very lowly in, uh, in, uh, in people's eyes and, uh, but public service gets tainted with that and so it's important for the public service to communicate the protocols of government um, is the comment I'd make. Don, while we're talking with you, um, obviously devices, almost as much as web channels, are a, are a big influencer around what happens to content and how the mm. content bumps mm. up against uh, content consumers. Yeah. Procurement in government shapes ongoing capacity, clearly. So around the connected government space, what are, what are some of the emerging shifts, such as BYOD, uh, you know, use of employee devices that might shift big employer contracts. Mm. Yes, I mean it's inevitable. I mean, as consumers, we are either digitally connected or not. Uh, the one thing I would say is that government has to cater for variable variability. Not every network will be the same. Not every device will be the same. The rate of change will be quick. Uh, so, in catering for variability, uh, I think Malcolm Turnbull called it optionality. Um, so those terms are very true because it is going to be a rapid change uh, to BYOD. It's already happening, uh, it's inevitable and that will drive the uh, digitisation of government services. So policy, channels, devices, culture. Let's uh, talk about the data itself. Uh, Mary Ann Williams, uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, big data is talked about a lot. Uh, it's certainly talked about in the context of uh, retail chains and all sorts of corporations gathering huge amounts of data and being able to make uh, good use of it uh, in their business. How relevant uh, is big data becoming to government and uh, might it lead to big policy analysis? Well, the answer is obviously yes. Uh, big data is the, the next wave of innovation. It's a disruptive technology. It's been identified by uh, McKinsey in their recent report. I mean, over the last two years, we've created 90% of the world's data. And I really encourage people to go and try and wrap their heads around what that scale means, uh, not just in terms of the size of the data, its volume, but also uh, a lot of it is coming from uh, sensors in police cars, for example. Uh, which is streaming, it's moving rapidly, it's coming from multiple sources, not just uh, human-created uh, natural language text. And uh, there's a lot of uh, noise and uh, there are problems with veracity with this data. But the holy grail is uh, value, all right? We, we, we have all this data, how can we squeeze value? And I think uh, there is a massive opportunity for government to at least begin to think about how to do this. And uh, there's always a, a lag. And, uh, you know, government 2.0, uh, if we're not there yet, it is very far behind. But maybe we should think about it like the developing countries do around mobile. You know, we've, we've seen how they've adapted to mobile. So we can move into this sort of uh, new paradigm of big data quickly but it means we do have to let go of certain things. 
And one of the things you have to let go of is our desire for absolutes and our desire for causal models because once you start dealing with big data, uh, it's so big, it's so difficult to make sense of that you, ha you have to pursue um, correlations rather than causal models. And let me illustrate with this very simple example. Uh, so if you want to know about flu trends uh, via government, then you have to wait for you know, a lot of information to come in from GPs and hospitals, what have you. You have to wait for months. Or you can use Google's uh, flu trends, which is real time, and Google is not using any medical health data whatsoever. It's simply using the words people use when they search on the internet. This is a, a taste of the future. And uh, I think people, certainly in government, uh, need to pay more attention to uh, this new world that we're entering. So do you see a risk that um, we, it could almost become the new fad and that we may gather so much big data but not develop the skill sets to be able to do justice to creating, as you say, the value? What, what, what's in the next in the coming years, in the next two, three years, what are the kinds of, uh, what's the kind of focus that agencies need to uh, be shifting towards around policy analysis or what kinds of skill sets to be making sense of big data? Well, uh, the Harvard Business Review has identified the data scientist as the sexiest job of the 21st century. So what is a data scientist? It's somebody who understands statistics, but it's also someone who can uh, write programs uh, to explore Twitter feeds, for example. Uh, so uh, the skills for a data scientist is what uh, we need to start building. And I think it's also really important to highlight the need for national governments to uh, help make the country much more competitive. I mean, we see the US government you know, making decisions and, and, and taking steps to enable uh, the whole country in, in lots of different ways. We see China doing that. And I think Australia needs to think very seriously about how its government can enable its citizens and its businesses to be much more uh, competitive in, in, in the global economy mm. uh, because we lag way behind uh, our major competitors. Coming back to uh, uh, the sexy job of yeah. uh, data science, um, some people say that uh, there's a, uh, a continuum between data, information, knowledge and narrative. Do you see a role for data journalists, as they're starting to be called, in taking data and, and not just sense-making, but creating a sense of story and narrative, uh, particularly in journalistic context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can think of uh, a big data value chain. So at one end, we have the data, and uh, we can use uh, automated tools to help us try and make sense of that data. We have to use tools because, you know, no single mind or a group of people could possibly kind of explore the data, you know, in a, in a lifetime. There's just way too much of it. And I think as you move up the, the value chain, uh, what people are curating today by hand, uh, machines will be doing. And so focusing on the, the high part of the, the value chain is where it's going to be particularly interesting. And, and that's where people can make 
that will have the most impact. Don Yeah, uh, I would support that. I, I've been talking to an Australian company who uh, have a predictive logic tool built out of PhD research uh, and uh, it's, it's uh, about understanding that we, we were often told we can understand seven plus or minus two things. It's actually about three or four variables we can actually cope with. So when you've got 40 variables, you need a, a model. Uh, and I'm not just talking about something that analyzes data in the past. It does predictive forward subjective logic. Uh, that's the sort of work yeah. I imagine you're working on. Yeah, I think uh, a good example that ties into some of the, d the discussion today uh, was the, the notion of a police car as a data scoop. And while that's marvellous and clearly transforming police work here in Australia, in Los Angeles, the police arrive at a crime scene before the crime's committed because they're able to actually analyse uh, the data. And this is real, and you, you can find out more about online if you just... Mm. We, we also have a situation now where people are starting to uh, look at how Facebook is able to tell when a woman's pregnant, often before she's even aware of it, yeah. based on not specific things that she looks at around babies, but just the changes in behaviour that, that happen uh, and the change in, in, in sort of the expression of what they're, how they're using Facebook. So Facebook can actually understand when a woman's pregnant and offer them targeted ads. Why can't government, using the same kind of data, identify when people are entering certain life stages and proactively start offering them the services they may need? Can I respond to that? Yes. Yes, because, well, one of, one of the issues is we stereotype, and that, that is one of the issues. So do you assume that I want a particular range of services because I'm unfortunately now getting into my late 40s and have started wearing glasses, but the alternative's worse? Um, but, but it is a real danger in that we, and, and whether it be based on age or um, what we perceive to be a disability or what we perceive to be you know, a, a racial stereotyping or things, there, there is an inherent danger in government assuming what those people need. And so we should be ready, ready to make the services available to them but we need to be really careful that we don't assume what services they need. And, and a, a, for me, a particular example would be if, if we looked at, um, for instance, groups potentially of disadvantaged children. Do we assume the education path that those children need based on a broad assessment of who they are? Or do you tailor the education to that child as an individual? And that's why I think we've got to be really careful about we don't want to become big brother. Thanks, Susan. Um, second last question for the group, and I'd welcome input from any one of you. It's been said today uh, by one of the speakers that the value of a public sector knowledge worker will increasingly become their social networks, their devices and their social knowledge. Um, how do you see this unfolding in, in coming years? Well, I think um, that it's largely already the case that a knowledge worker is is really valued about not whether they hold the knowledge personally but whether they can access the knowledge very, very quickly. And uh, the internet has done this to us. It's no longer about you know, what you know, it's about whether you can find it very, very quickly. Um, and uh, social media has added on to that because it allows people to connect to others who may know information or know where to find it. So suddenly you know, the value of networks has become very, very crucial. But I don't think this is particularly new. I think if you go back to you know, the invention of the printing press, 
that's when uh, suddenly humans saw a huge drop off in their ability to remember large amounts of information. We stopped having uh, oral narratives and uh, sagas and similar things and we put it all down in these devices we called books which became stores of knowledge. All we've done is we've transferred that into a, into a much more uh, robust network where anybody can access it at any point in time. So I think a knowledge worker by definition is not defined by their personal expertise but, the, but by the expertise they can actually tap into. And uh, any attempts by organisations to limit these people to simply relying on their own brains is probably uh, very destructive towards productivity. Anyone else? I'd like to add that I think that it's a marvellous way that people can release uh, their customer service ability. Again, I'll use personal examples. I've been doing my family tree. A, uh, my grandmother was buried in an unmarked grave in the Depression era. A junior council worker just found that last week for me. Um, uh, uh, I went online looking for um, information about my grandfather in the First World War. A very lovely woman at uh, Australian War Memorial sent me some really interesting emails and found me information about his war records, which were digitally recorded. And so I have all that information now. So there's, there are people who've really engaged with me. They use their ability to go and find the data, in some cases uh, when I couldn't find it, but they personally engaged. I got lovely emails from them and, and so on. So uh, yeah, I think that's an opportunity to release the real community connection. And to me, again, as a public servant, um, most of us are public servants because we actually believe in being in the service of the public and it's, it's really important. We are there to provide the services that are needed of government and one of the big things that's different between a commercial and a government sector is, and we are discussing this yesterday, is one of our purposes is, is again to service the disadvantaged. So we, we don't just take the most commercially viable model we, in terms of we deliver effect, effectively, efficiently, but we're not there to make a profit. And so in terms of if you add that value system is the thing that needs to be pervasive and that behavioural system and, and ethos, on top of that, then, okay, what are the skills that you need? And that's where I think we actually need to really enrich that sense of, of commercial acumen. We need to build in um, organisational psychology, um, behavioural things, customer service, all of those things. I think it's actually about looking at the way that you deliver those services to the public and making sure that you always optimise your skill sets and your capabilities to do that. Okay, um, I have one last question, very briefly, uh, a sentence or a phrase from each of you. What would you say is the, the one big question we need to be asking ourselves in 2014 around these themes? How do we do it better together? Great. Great. How do we galvanise leadership to give a mandate to their teams to drive these things forward? Uh, it's, it's never about the technology, it's, it's about what the technology can do. I support that. I think it is about people connecting with each other in communities. Very good. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to our panel today, Susan Sly, Craig Tomler, Don Easter and Mary Ann Williams. Thanks for joining us again on Gov2 Radio. Listeners, if you'd like to follow up on today's discussion, you'll find links and resources on the episode page at www.gov20radio.com. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your company again next time. Bye for now.